The filmmakers behind Making a Murder, the Netflix documentary series that has consumed the conversation since it first aired in December. Moira Demos and Laura Ricciardi on Pop Culture Confidential. spent 18 years in prison for something he didn't do. 18 years. 18 years. DNA had come through indicating that he had not committed the crime. Law enforcement officers realized that they had screwed up big time. We were getting ready to bring a lawsuit. $36 million. Manitowoc County itself and the sheriff and the DA would be on the hook for those damages. They're not handing that kind of money over to Steve Avery. I did tell him, be careful. They are not even close to being finished with you. Do we have a body or anything yet? I don't believe so. We have Stephen Avery in custody, though. Are you kidding me? The disappearance of Teresa Halbach remains a mystery. Mr. Avery's blood is found inside of Teresa Halbach's vehicle. Steve, everybody's listening. What do you want to say today? I'm listening. If convicted, Steve Avery will spend the rest of his life in prison. We found a key. That key was scrubbed and his DNA was placed on it. This is really strange. What's going on here? Hallbox's last stop Monday was at Stephen Avery's home. If he did this, maybe it was good he was in prison all that time. Everything I've heard him say hasn't been the truth. It was extraordinarily disturbing. We went through this 20 years ago and we're going through it now again. In this criminal justice system, good luck. You are probably the most dangerous individual ever to set foot in this courtroom. The truth always comes out. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biro. Thank you for listening. For me and countless others around the globe, my holiday season was taken over by the Netflix docuseries Making a Murderer, a truly gripping, infuriating, and disturbing true crime tale. And in the middle of what must be the biggest post-airing frenzy in recent memory, I'm very honored for the opportunity to get some time with the filmmakers. And for your information, there are many developments surrounding the series since the airing. And in this talk, there may be spoilers for those who haven't seen the series in its entirety or followed along. It was in 2005 when a newspaper story caught the attention of the series directors Moira Demos and Laura Ricciardi a story that would ultimately lead to them moving to Wisconsin and spending 10 years of their lives following it. Stephen Avery, a Wisconsin man who had been imprisoned for 18 years in 1985 for a rape he didn't commit, was freed by DNA evidence in 2003. But then, two years later, when Avery was in the middle of a $36 million lawsuit against Manitowoc County, its former sheriff and district attorney, Stephen Avery was arrested for the murder of Teresa Halbach, a local photographer. Her car and her burned bones were found on his property. The same authorities he had been suing were heavily involved in gathering evidence in this case. In 2007, Mr. Avery was found guilty of first-degree intentional homicide and is serving life in prison with no chance of parole. Brendan Dassey, Mr. Avery's 16-year-old learning-disabled nephew, was also sentenced to life for his alleged role in the murder, after confessing in what by all accounts seems like a coerced confession. Miss Demos and Miss Ricciardi worked on the series for 10 years, following the trial, the Avery family, Stephen Avery's very loyal parents, convinced of his innocence, 
and who have seen their son in jail for decades, twice. His defense attorneys, Dean Strang and Jerry Buting, so impassioned and who have become heartthrobs and heroes after the airing. The prosecution, the press that followed the case, and many more. Was Stephen Avery set up by the local authorities as payback for the lawsuit? Is an innocent man in jail for a second time? Was 16-year-old Brandon Dassey's confession coerced? The series is spellbinding and infuriating, regardless of guilt or innocence, as it shines a very bright light on the system and has us, the viewers, questioning everything, the police, the jury, and the entire justice system, really. Moira Demos and Laura Ricciardi, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is Laura. This is Moira. The series has been a runaway success. Not a day goes by that some new information hasn't come to light. An outpouring of support for Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, petitions to President Obama, the prosecution giving interviews and saying that you left out important evidence in the series, amateur detectives saying they can solve the case one way or the other. What has surprised or shocked you the most about some of these very impassioned reactions to the case, positive or negative? Um... Well, I think just the scale of it is is surprising and overwhelming. I mean, you know, we have, you know, we knew that we were sharing, you know, compelling footage that had never been shown before and that it was pretty intense and upsetting. And, you know, it, it's not surprising that that has an impact on people, but the level in which, you know, people around the world and people you know, from all walks of life are responding to it is just um, really overwhelming and, and really encouraging. You know, we put a lot of faith in our viewers as we were putting this together, you know, making sure we didn't, you know, dumb it down, that we, you know, let scenes play out and challenge them. You know, it's it's a dense series. We knew we were asking a lot and it's amazing that people people are responding. Let's go back a little bit. When you first came to Wisconsin in 2005, what was your first impression of the Avery family? That they were incredibly resilient. I mean, this was a family that was uniquely positioned because they had already experienced the horror of having a family member wrongly imprisoned for 18 years. And this was not a family that just simply believed in their heart that Stephen was innocent of the first crime, but they knew he was actually innocent because they were with him that day. So just the, you know, the trauma that this family endured for nearly two decades um, of having their son, their brother, their father, their uncle locked away, excuse me, and feeling helpless um, and having to rely on a system that had already failed him was really, um, you know, just really placed him in a unique position, especially, you know, two, within two years of Stephen's release, he was pulled back into the system. Your conversations with Stephen during the documentary series, he seems to have survived this psychologically, so to speak, 18 years of being falsely imprisoned, and then the next time around, what would you say, do you have a theory as to how he's been able to remain as sane as he seems to the viewers? I mean, of course, we can only speculate, but, um, you know, the thing about Stephen is he, he does seem to never give up hope. And, um, you know, whether that be in the 90s, you know, when all of his appeals had failed and really he had no more chances and but kept fighting and 
his brother kept fighting for him. Um, and even, you know, during this prosecution, you know, we heard a number of times from Stephen or from Dolores, you know, I just hope the truth comes out at trial. So, you know, they had no choice but to place their hope in, in the same system that had already failed them which was really, you know, a compelling situation. Was there any point during your filming that you could see them falter, something specific that happened? Well, I would say that they definitely experienced, you know, Brendan Dassey's involvement as a as a blow to, to Stephen's case and to the family itself. It was extremely disruptive and very disorienting, very confusing for the family. I mean, I think part of what's demonstrated in the documentary is Brendan's mother, Stephen's sister, Barb, really struggling to make sense of the turn of events and, you know, wanting to do her best to understand the extent to which her son was involved, if at all. And, um, you know, she was in a really difficult position because her son was being held by the county and um, she could not have any private conversations with him. So she was in this awful position of wanting to know and wanting to be able to advise her son while at the same time having all of their calls monitored and recorded. How much of a role would you say that class plays in this case? I, I think it's a, it's a thread throughout this whole story of, you know, the role of class in American culture, and I'm sure this plays out abroad as well. It's one way in which, you know, citizens are do not have equal, equal access to their rights. And I think that plays out in the American criminal justice system, whether that be in your access to, you know, a qualified defense attorney, um, or whether that be, you know, in your level of education and your, your ability to speak compellingly. Um, so that's definitely one of, one of the things that the series explores is, you know, is there a level playing field and what are the factors, you know, if not, what are the factors that play into that? I'd like to ask you a little on an emotional level as a filmmaker. One of the most shocking moments in the documentary is when Len Kaczynski, the appointed public defender for 16-year-old Brendan Dassey, sends his private investigator in to give Dassey a polygraph test and get a written confession. For the viewer, it seems like the boy's own criminal defense attorney is just throwing him to the wolves. It's really heartbreaking. And I wanted to know... As filmmakers, what were these moments like? Could they be emotionally infuriating? Well, that particular example is interesting because we did not see that tape of of O'Kelly meeting with Brendan until 2010, until the Center on Wrongful Convictions brought their post-conviction motion. It It was part of what they filed as part of that motion. So, you know, that was not something that we knew about as the, um, as the cases were unfolding. And that really was one of the most shocking moments to us in our production. I mean, I remember putting the DVD, you know, into the player and asking Laura, like, wait, you know, which cop is this? Like, you know, it took us several minutes to understand that Michael O'Kelly was Brendan's defense investigator. He was working for Brendan. Um, Cause that's not what we were seeing going on. So, um, and I, I think it's important to note, too, this is Laura, that um, 
Brendan's new team, the Center on Wrongful Convictions of Youth, that came to represent him um, during the post-conviction process, argued to Judge Fox, who was also a trial judge um, in the Halbach case for Brendan, argued that Lankachinsky owed a duty of loyalty to his client and breached that duty of loyalty. And, um, you know, the judge ruled against them, essentially. So they had argued that Brendan should be entitled to a new trial and Judge Fox, you know, ruled against them. You know, it's important to note as well that the Court of Appeals affirmed Judge Fox's decision. Right. And and the Wisconsin Supreme Court did not even think the case was worth reviewing. So they did not even grant review of the case. So it's, to us, it was an egregious violation, and yet the, you know, the Judge Fox and the appellate courts did absolutely nothing about it. But did you find that at like at certain points in during these ten years that we just have to you know put down the cameras and do something else? I mean that it was so infuriating emotionally. I mean I think we believed all along that the most impactful thing we could do and the most important role we could play as documentarians was to accurately capture these events and and to show them to the world. You know you know to believe in the power of filmmaking and storytelling. As, as a means of social change. Yeah, and we would have sacrificed that privilege and that responsibility if we had injected ourselves into the events or into the story. So we made a concerted effort to not have an impact on the events as they were unfolding and, um, you know, to leave as much room for the viewer as possible. That's why wherever we could, we relied on primary source materials and interviews with key players who would have, you know, could could convey their firsthand account of things. Um, the prosecutor, Ken Kratz, as well as the local sheriff, ha- has since the airing told the media that certain pieces of, of damning evidence didn't make it into um, your movie. Um, how do you respond to that? We disagree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we've said before we took our cues from the prosecutor himself, law enforcement themselves, um, the prosecution and law enforcement in November were holding daily press conferences where they were, you know, referencing um, in detail physical evidence they were finding and, you know, very much sort of identifying what would become the tent poles of the prosecution's case. And so we included all of that evidence in the documentary. The less significant evidence, there was no time for that, um, you know, it was, you know, we thought we were asking for a significant commitment, um, especially in today's culture where, you know, people watch 30-second videos. We're asking people to tune in for more than 10 hours. And we devoted, you know, three to four hours um, to the trials themselves. So it would have been impossible to include the less significant evidence. And I think what's important about the types of evidence Ken Kratz is pointing to now um, people need to take it in context. This is not direct evidence of the commission of a crime. It's circumstantial evidence. It was disputed evidence. These are not uncontested facts. So to the extent we did not include certain types of evidence, you neither heard from the prosecution with respect to that evidence nor the defense. 
Um, and some have questioned why you included Ken Kratz's um, sort of sexting scandal that happened three years after the case. What would you respond to that? Well, in fact, we left out, you know, the majority of that scandal. The only part of that story that we included was the part that related to the the Dassey and Avery prosecution. Um, we, you know, we included it because as as what came out is when the AP reporter broke this news, it, it became clear that the Department of Justice had known about this for a year and chosen to do nothing. Mm-hmm. So it was an example of once again, you know, people not being held accountable for their actions and the state of Wisconsin not taking action to, to clean up its system. And it resulted in, in Ken Kratz eventually being taken off the Avery and Dassey cases, despite using those cases as, as almost a threat, you might say, to the Department of Justice of, you know, you need me to, to keep fighting against for these cases. So, you know, we only included the piece that related to the matter at hand. Um, you know, it could have been a 40-minute expose about all of what came out, but we did not do that. We only did what was relevant to this story. Yeah, Ken Kraft is clearly trying to minimize now his, his history with women. So, you know, he's, he has no respect for history or truth. <laughs> um, since the airing, um, we just read that um, Stephen Avery's leveled some accusations against his brothers. There weren't many interviews with them in the documentary. Um, why? Well, Stephen's brother Earl, it was his prerogative whether to participate or not, and he declined. Okay. Um, you know, it was a very difficult time. The family was in crisis. You know, they not only had, uh, and their business was in crisis. Um, and it was a high-profile case. There was a lot of pressure from, you know, all different forces. So Earl declined to be interviewed by us. Chuck initially was willing to participate, but then um, was less available after Brendan became part of the story. But with respect to your question about, you know, other possible suspects, when the defense initially filed that motion, the judge or Judge Willis ordered that motion be filed under seal. So um, we were not even privy to argument in, in the courtroom about who these other potential subjects were. So it was not our place to include that in the documentary, especially because that document didn't even become unsealed until after the trial. So none of that evidence was admissible. And, um, you know, we we did not want the documentary to do harm to anyone and certainly to anyone's reputation, especially, you know, just, I mean, there's such power in accusation and people picking up on this story now, I'm sure it's hard for those people who are named in that document because they're not in a position to respond. So we thought it was the most responsible thing to do and the least salacious. I know that this is a procedural look at the the justice system, um, really, this documentary, but um, do you have thoughts on guilt and not guilty? Well, I mean, what we have said publicly before and really what we truly believe is that, you know, we do not feel that the state met their burden in proving beyond a reasonable doubt that these men are guilty. You know, that is that is not the same thing as saying we believe they are innocent. You know, we do not know what happened. Um, the people that could have answered those questions are the investigators. Um, it's very frustrating for us as it is for viewers to have so many unanswered questions. 
But um, you know what those questions mean is that that there's that there is doubt about their guilt. Do you speak to Avery, uh, Stephen Avery, and Brendan Dassey today, and how are they doing? We speak with Stephen occasionally. Um, he has to call us. We are not in a position to call him because he's incarcerated in a maximum security prison. Mm-hmm. He has a new attorney, actually, so I don't know if those conversations will continue. But um, you know, essentially, we. He's been, you know, he was telling us that he had filed another post-conviction motion. He lost and that he was working on his appeal. And then most recently he told us that, um, I I think he had filed um, the last time we spoke with him. So we were talking about that. We're not really in a position either to discuss the theories with him because just out of concern for his safety, um, the Department of Corrections and the prison itself really is not interested in their inmates, um, you know, becoming famous. So we're very careful about what we discuss about the series. Do you believe he'll get a fair day in court? I mean, I think everybody deserves a fair day in court. You know, it's it's hard to know what will happen, whether whether his new attorney will will be able to win him a new trial. You know, the, the burden is very high. You've seen a lot now um, of being let down by the justice system and being afraid of, of police. I just, uh, I mean, police killings, your series. I was just watching a, a movie called Spotlights where the Catholic Church was covering up abuse scandals. Um, losing faith in authority in this way, wh- what have you found that that does to society? I think it motivates people to to learn more about why the system is not functioning properly. I mean, I think the threshold issue is for people to understand that the system is imperfect and that there is room for improvement. And I think what this documentary does in part is shine a light on some of the problems and hopefully helps identify some of the underlying problems, like this false sense of certitude, you know, and the rhetoric that comes along with these types of cases. If people, you know, will, you know, caution themselves not to rush to judgment and keep an open mind and respect that justice is a process, then I think that that will go a long way in terms of, you know, um, people engaging with the system and trying to help improve it. Right. And what's next for you, the two of you? TBD. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, to be... (laughs) <laughs> to the extent there are significant developments um, with this story, we'll we'll continue to follow it mm-hmm. um, if that's feasible for us. But beyond that, we're we're not sure. We're keeping our options open and thinking about you know the types of stories we want to tell and types of commitments we want to make, given where we are in our lives now. Thank you so much for taking this time and for making this um, series and shining a light on the justice systems and and the problems there. I I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. Yeah, it was our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much to the filmmakers Making a Murder, Moira Demos and Laura Riccardi. The series is, of course, available on Netflix. And thank you so much for listening. Please send us your feedback, your comments on this episode or any other. You can Twitter on at PodPopCulture or on the webpage, popcultureconfidential.com. This episode was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, produced by Renee Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina Jörling-Biro. Thank you so much for listening.
Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, (laughs) maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. That's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green.